Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. We've certainly learned over the last two years about the importance of global health, but what is the role of pathology in global health? And more importantly, why should pathology be involved at the forefront of global health? My guest today is Dr. Quentin Eichbaum. Dr. Eichbaum is a pathologist, and today we're going to talk about some of the organizations he's involved with regarding global health in Africa, and we'll talk about the paper that he co-authored about pathology infrastructure in Mozambique. All right, here's Dr. Quentin Eichbaum. As you were growing up, because you grew up in Namibia and South Africa. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and in while you were in South Africa, you initially studied law. So I'm, I'm curious about that. Like, what drew you to that field at the time? Yeah, it's interesting. I was very confused about what I wanted to be. Um, like many young uh, teenagers, I wanted to be a writer initially, but my mother wouldn't hear of it. So I tried to strike a compromise by studying law and studying English literature on the side, which I did a lot of. Um, but I was also kind of interested in law um, because South Africa was in political turmoil at the time under apartheid, and it was an incredible period living in the eye of history. And at the University of Cape Town, what was a hive of political activity, the students were protesting against the apartheid regime. Uh, There were protests, the police were on campus almost daily with tear gas and firing and beating students. And I was involved in the student press as well. The African National Congress had been banned and the United Democratic Front was a shadow organization uh, that worked for it, and I was involved in student press. So I decided to study law because I thought that's what needed the most doing in South Africa. I was going to study law and go into politics and try and do something about the horrific system we had in South Africa, the racism. And I liked the, the study of those Roman Dutch law, and I had to do Uh, You had to study Latin for a whole year at university and study Roman law, which was incredibly interesting, and constitutional law. But when it got to the nitty-gritty of law, uh, I found it very boring, Uh, you know, housing transactions, and uh, that just didn't interest me at all. So I I was fundamentally bored. And then South Africa changed um, when Mandela was released. But I'd already decided to switch before them when I saw the political transformation beginning to happen and uh, I never practiced law um, and of course South African law I just uh, switched out of it and science caught my attention curiosity and I did a PhD first um, part started in South Africa finished it at Harvard Medical School and partly in Cambridge in the UK my advisor was there and so then after the PhD I started medicine what was it that kind of brought you out of South Africa and into the U.S.? Was it just for the to go to Harvard? Um, yeah, I was offered uh, during my PhD. Some scientists were visiting. They were very interested in the work I was doing. And so they offered me a position at Children's Hospital in Boston. And so I took it. Although I received a scholarship to study laws, continue studying law, which I, I didn't take up. So that was basically an opportunity that was offered to me that brought me. I struggled whether to go to the UK or the US, but I decided to come to the US instead. Was it difficult for you to leave Africa? Uh, 
Yeah, you know, I, I still work there extensively, and I tell people that my soul is in Africa, and in many ways, I, I'm a complete atheist, uh, uh, but I use soul in the in the broad sense of the word, that I feel very, very connected to the continent, and I've, I've traveled extensively to 48 of the 54 countries in Africa and know it very well, and my body's in America, but I feel in many ways my soul is in Africa, but... You know, it's. I can talk at great length as to why Africa is in the state it is, and a lot of that has to do with colonialism, which cut up the African continent into pieces for the European powers. In 1884, in particular at the Berlin Conference, was literally divided up among the European powers, and that's one of the reasons the continent has struggled since then, and neocolonialism still goes on today, with many countries raping the continent the Congo, one reason it's a, a mess is all, that's it's probably one of the wealthiest countries in the world in terms of mineral wealth. Your iPhone is, it wouldn't function without the Belgian, I call it Belgian Congo because that's what it was, but mm-hmm. the Congo uh, has very mineral rich and everyone wants the minerals. So anyway, I love Africa. I left it, but I still work there. I have one foot in the US and one in Africa. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about some of the things that you're still doing in Africa mm-hmm. a little bit later on. Now, you mentioned that you had to study Latin for law school, and I'd imagine that really came in handy going into medical school. Oh, that's a very very perceptive point, um, because in South Africa, you had to study Latin till your final year of school in order to get into medical school. Now, I didn't do medical school in South Africa, but mm-hmm. their argument was that you had to understand all these terms in, in uh, medicine and biology, which I think is complete nonsense. You don't really need to study years of Latin to, to understand medicine, and people get by very well without Latin. But certainly law, Roman law, and we had to read Pliny in Latin and Harvard in Latin, and uh, there are a lot of terms in, in law which... which, which uh, in Roman law, and South Africa had Roman Dutch law, which was a very good legal system outside of apartheid, which was laid on top of it, obviously. There it maybe makes more sense, but I don't think you need to do Latin to study medicine. So going into medical school, was it were you interested in pathology right from the beginning, or were there other specialties that you liked? No, not at all. I wasn't interested in pathology. <laughs> um, I, I, I remember being clearly quite hurt um, when I started as a student. One of my first rotations, my first rotation was at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And my the uh, person running the rotation was an Irish guy. And after two weeks on the rotation, he sat us in a circle and he told us the specialties we were all going to go in he, as he predicted. After two weeks, third year, clinical, and, I, and he came to me and said, in his Irish accent, Quentin pathology. And I was really angry about it. I thought, I thought he meant I was useless clinically, so you might as well just go and look, spend the rest of your life looking through a microscope. And he clarified for me a couple of years later when I met him on the wards that I, having done a PhD already, he sensed that I was very interested in the science and kept on asking questions about what was going on in this illness. And uh, the other students were much more interested in just moving on and getting the patients treated and out. And so he sensed, he said that I had a deep interest in in the underlying science of, of the pathologies we were seeing. 
And then uh, those were the days of the 120-hour work week. And the pathology of mass general was also a lot of work. And I, I was told again, you know, as I graduated, that you should think about this very seriously. And and then I was offered a position at Mass General to do pathology on a platter without having to do the match. They said, here, we'll offer it to you on a platter. If you come and do it here, you don't need to go through the match. So I basically just took it and <laughs> skipped the whole match and started over there. Mm. Um, so that's a long I story. That. But, yeah. So what other specialties like, were you interested in? I was very much wanted to do infectious diseases and go into global health. Uh, it's a good question, but when I did infectious diseases on the wards, I, I was very disappointed. I found it was a discipline that, you know, they were treating, it seemed like you could almost, and I say this guardedly, use any antibiotic for any illness and they crossed over and and certainly I didn't like the nosocomial infections that you saw in hospitals. It was just I didn't find it that interesting as I thought it would. I had not yet then had exposure to infectious diseases in a global health sense, um in, in for instance in Africa. So I, I just decided at that point that um I would, you know, not pursue that and give pathology a try. And also, I wasn't too happy with, um, I, I'm kind of a reflective person, and I need time to think about things and to do other things. And I was worried that if I went into internal medicine, I would be having one patient after the next every 10 to 15 minutes coming at me. And that didn't appeal to me, especially the way medicine was changing, that you were basically you know, just an automaton and uh and I also needed time to think and talk to, to, to patients. So when I got into clinical pathology and transfusion medicine, that sort of was a good mix for me because it, you know, you'd see patients all day long and time to reflect and think and write and do global health and, and a lot of other things. So, so it was a hard decision. And some days I still wonder whether it was the right decision or not, but. Probably overall, it, it, it was. Yeah, it sounds like the, the patient interaction is still something that's important to you. Absolutely. Um, right. And and as well, I mean, you've mentioned global health already a couple of times, and this is definitely an important interest to you. I mean, it, a lot of the things that you're doing have that global health aspect to them. Was that's that right. that come from growing up in Africa and the things that you saw there or did that did develop uh, later on? Yeah, um, that, that certainly Africa had a big impact. And when I was in pathology, I was very uh, concerned and worried that I, I wouldn't be able to get into global health through pathology because at that time, patho uh, global health was virtually infectious diseases. Paul Farmer was a, a mentor of mine at Harvard Medical School, and I got to know him and uh, uh, some people at uh, Partners in Health, one of the chief medical officer was actually a resident on rotations I did, and I, I talked to them, but pathology just was not on the radar for, for global health. So I struggled to think of, you know, how, how one could connect the dots with it. Um, certainly, you know, it had to be relevant. I couldn't figure how it could be. And there were global pathology groups like Pathologists Overseas, which was a group most of retired people who would go and do pathology in, in, in Africa and other parts of the world. But 
it it wasn't really front and central. And then I noticed that other specialties, particularly surgery and anesthesia and radiology, were getting a foot in the door. And, you know, it became at global health conferences that I attended. I wondered, well, hang on, surgery people initially didn't think that's global health, but it, it is, and of course it is. And so slowly but surely, um, you know, I connected with the American Society for Clinical Pathology, and I noticed they were certainly getting very involved in it and had connections and projects in Africa. So and then transfusion, I, I, blood is very important. And the conferences at the AABB, uh, that, the Association called American Association of Blood Banks now, it's called Association for the Advancement of Blood and Biotherapies. They, I try to have global health conferences panels there, and I kept submitting them, and they kept being rejected. And I said, you know, why are you rejecting global pathology uh, conference uh, proposals? You know, you know, obviously blood must be very important. In and they were dismissive and initially said, oh, you know, we're not really interested, and there's no, there's no bucket to put these proposals in. <laughs> so I said, well, create a bucket. And, and allowed, and gradually the penny dropped and they allowed it. And so I started putting in global health proposals and we had panel discussions, 90 minute panel discussions. And one of the first one was on trauma and blood in Africa and many other things. And, uh, slowly it took off. And then, uh, some years later, I established the Global Transfusion Forum. Which at ABB, which the board agreed to, and I chair that still and has several subcommittees and been very successful. We've got a lot of connections in many different countries and we're finishing a book on global pathology uh, now in a couple of months. Um, so, and then I also through ACP and then the, the Lancet got involved in surveying pathology in Africa and it became very apparent through colleagues of mine, Anne Nelson and uh, Dan Milner and others who had begun to work very extensively in Africa, that there was an incredible dearth of pathologists in Africa, mm-hmm. which I can address now or later, but um, it, it, it's a problem. And so pathology, I call it the missing link in, in global health. And I started giving talks with that title to show why pathology is absolutely the missing link in global health. And I'll tell you briefly why I'll unless you want to address that at a later stage. No, no, go ahead. Um, It's the missing link because pathology occupies a very interesting place in in healthcare delivery. And a picture that I put in my mind and talks is an hourglass. And pathology lies at that little, the bottleneck where the sand leaks through. And it's an hourglass because it lies at the intersection of deductive and inductive reasoning. So it's deductive when you're trying to reach a diagnosis. What is it? What is it? Is it this? Is it that? And then you can reach a a, a diagnosis. Once you have the diagnosis, it's inductive. How should we treat it like this? Like you go from the specific to the general. First of general to specific diagnosis. Then you have the diagnosis specific to the general inductive. So that's a very critical place it occupies. So unless you know the diagnosis of something, how are you going to treat it? And what it has led to, and the World Bank did studies on this, it can lead, if if you don't have a diagnosis, and if the pathology laboratories, which is another big interest of mine, because there's no medical discipline like pathology that rests entirely on another discipline, which is the labs. If the labs aren't functioning properly, and you cannot trust the laboratory result, it leads to what the 
World Bank called the vicious cycle, and they've got a whole lot of steps in it, and physicians have to make a presumptive diagnosis. Well, let's just, we don't know really if these labs are right, it doesn't look right, it doesn't fit it, let's just treat it as though it were that. Now, that is incredibly wasteful, especially in a low-resource setting. When you make a presumptive diagnosis and you've got the diagnosis wrong, and you treat it, and I can tell you many cases where that happened a case of a minister in an African country, the wife of a minister who had sort of uterine masses, and they thought, oh, this is cancer. And they couldn't diagnose, and they didn't diagnose, and they started treating her with you know, expensive you know, cancer regimens, and eventually she specimen, nothing, no response, was sent to South Africa and was a fibroid. Now, that's a totally incorrect diagnosis, and you're treating her incorrect, exposing her to all these toxic, uh, you know, anti-cancer therapies. And so it just goes to show the central part of pathology. And it became apparent to me already as a student at Mass General Hospital, where they would have the mortality and morbidity rounds, um, which are famous, and people, all the physicians would come into the room to discuss a particular death in a patient or morbidity. And they would always start, I was always intrigued by this process. Um, the pathologist would always sit at the back of the room. Then the surgeons would be yelling at the at the medicine people, and they would be yelling at the radiologists about what what it was and why did you do this and why did you do that and what is it is it this is it that? And these are famous cases that get written up in the New England Journal, the CPC cases, which are actually ultimately written by pathologists. At the end of the hour, at the end of the hour, after vigorous debate, often acrimonious debate, they would the chair of the meeting would turn to the pathologist who had been quiet throughout the meeting and ask them, So what is it? What was it? And then the pathologist would announce the diagnosis and say, Oh, oh really? Oh, we were right, you were oh, whatever. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Mm. Would, well, wouldn't you first ask the pathologist, what is it, instead right. of having a one out? Now, obviously, the process is important as well, you know, the, what they did and didn't do. And before they knew the diagnosis, they had to do some treatment. I'm, I'm not undermining that, but but it did illustrate to me that pathology is the gold standard. And there was a study which I've tried to locate, but was published a while ago, I think it was surveying the US and Germany, which showed that. 69%, that's nearly 70% of, of diagnosis in, in, in medicine in general could not have been made without a pathology, either tissue diagnosis or at least a laboratory value from clinical pathology. That is astounding to me, mm -hmm. that pathology occupies such a central role in, in the healthcare chain, and yet it's, it's, it's very underestimated. You know, pathologists are... Uh, you know, the talk I give is coming out of the basement. You know, got to come, we have to come out of the basement and announce yeah. ourselves as being central to the process. We should stop regarding ourselves as not a critical component of healthcare. We are absolutely critical. So I've got lots of other reasons why pathology needs to come out of the basement, including a humanities uh, uh, focus, which I'll talk about. Yeah, certainly an, an example of this is, is the, the COVID pandemic. Yeah. I mean, pathology, you know, lab testing is a central has a central role in all yeah. of this. Actually, that did pathology a good good service because at my hospital, uh, Vanderbilt University Medical Center, now um, the pathology got huge credit from from the healthcare center for for stepping up and doing all this testing at a, and bringing in new instrumentation and, and, and seeing to it, they suddenly thought, whoa, 
this is pathology does all of this. It was very, very strange. As though they didn't know the mm-hmm. testing. You know, it's interesting. Many clinicians think the testing just falls out of the sky. You know, you just click a button in the electronic record and the test comes back, which, right. which is another concept that I was very involved in with my former mentor, Michael Posada, who started it, or he started Mass General, and I was involved and was brought to Vanderbilt. And that's the diagnostic management team. And the way pathology used to work, mm-hmm. and he always mentions this analogy, clinicians would click a button on the floor to order tests. It was like throwing that order over a wall, and the pathology lab would catch it on the other side of the wall and do the results and throw the results back over the wall, and the clinicians would go, huh, and try and interpret it and figure it out. The DMT, or diagnostic management team, breaks down the wall, and there's direct interaction with the clinicians and, and the the, the uh, healthcare workers on, on, the, on the medical floors. And we have teams now, and I set that up at Vanderbilt in our department, where I bring in every day we round at 10.30, and I have uh, the technologists in the group and uh, the residents and fellows and uh, the quality assurance people and visitors and transfusion safety officers, and we discuss every patient. And I let ev- I make sure through a concept of psychological safety that everyone can talk and that no one should be afraid of speaking up. And it so enhances patient safety to have 10 sets of eyes on, on every result. And when we write the note, as a resident writes the note, we correct it word by word. That goes into the chart, and then it gets sent back to me for attestation. That is delivering excellent patient care in clinical pathology and transfusion. There are ways of bringing other people into it, bringing pathology closer to the the clinical applications. And even as a resident at Mass General, actually, we had every day at 11.30 or 11 a.m., the chief resident had to give a talk to one of the clinical teams that would come down from the floor. They'd given us a case the week before to look at that they were interested in the testing about and the chief resident, I was the chief resident for a year, uh, would have to give them a short talk about this case. It was an incredible training in, you know, looking at all the different cases and in connecting pathology with the clinical, you know, clinicians on the floor. And that we should really try and replicate. It's a great uh, model. I haven't seen it replicated anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard of the the diagnostic management teams, and that yeah, you're right. That's a great that that is a great model, and it's it it is better for patients because it it decreases unnecessary oh, testing. Oh, we showed that at publications decreased right. unnecessary testing, lowered costs, and so in the DMT, mm-hmm. the pathologist, if you say we think it's this, we will tell you order particularly in heme path. We'll say order these three tests first. Then we'll look at it again, and then maybe order that one. Instead of you just clicking, what happens? It leads to over-testing if you don't do it. People don't know what it is. So let's just order everything and throw the net out as wide as we can and trawl and then look at all the results and decide. Through looking at the literature very carefully, the pathologists can tell you, we know that's not a good test. It's not, not very specific or sensitive. These are the three best tests to start off with. So just start off with these, and it will give us a very good idea where we are. So pathology has a – first, the clinicians kicked up a huge fuss. How dare you tell us what to order? We know the patient. We know the disease. Just do as we tell you. And then eventually they kind of saw the incredible value of this. And uh, the publications showed that it, it saved time. It was much safer. It saved costs and everything. The impact was quite significant. 
Let's get into some of your uh, activities in the area of mm-hmm. global health. And we're kind of, I mean, there's a lot, so we're just kind of getting a, a little little taste of this. But the first one is, it's called the Consortium of Uni- Universities for Global Health. So can you tell me what is this organization and, and what, what does it do? Yeah, so this organization started around 2010, but it grew out of another organization called GHEC, Global Health Education Consortium, which had started in the 90s, and I'd attended as a student a meeting of those when there were only about 10, 20 people in the room. Um, but it changed into the Consortium of Universities for Global Health, CUGH, uh, which I've been involved with from its inception. And it is the largest academic global health organization in the world. It currently has about 200 universities in it, almost, and a network of about 30,000 um, around the world. And so it is the prime academic universities, a global health organization in the world, and it's located in Washington, the headquarters, and universities belong to it and pay a fee to belong. And I was involved with it from the beginning, and I started several of its subcommittees, the workforce committee I started um looking at the global health workforce. And then I chaired and brought together the education committee for many years, which was comprised of 10 subcommittees. So it was a huge committee with about 200 members of which took all the subcommittees. In. And the subcommittees were on global health, graduate education, undergraduate education, competencies, education, um, postgraduate training, uh, and a lot of diff- different uh, workforce um, and many different subcommittees. And a lot of excellent work and publications came out of that that committee, which um, I've transitioned off of. But I've been on the board of directors for uh, this is my second term on that, and that has many leaders in global health from different universities running it from around the world, trying to include more more and more members from low and middle income countries. So, which is one of the main dilemmas to try and increase its reach from out of North America into low and middle income countries. So I've worked very closely with them. I also chair the AFRI Health CUGH uh, committee or working group that brings the biggest healthcare consortium in Africa, AFRI Health, to connect that with CUGH. And I've that grew out of MEPI, which is the Medical Education Partnership Initiative from PEPFAR. And so these are the two groups. This is where my connection with Africa comes in. Um, Afri Health and CUGH, I, I work very closely with them, and we've had satellite meetings uh, twice a year. And uh, you were talking about like recruiting more more people uh, in, into these this this organization, into these committees and groups. How do you go about doing that? How do you spread the word about something like this? Oh, I can tell you. There many people know about it and many people want to join it. And when we put out calls, each subcommittee could only have 20 people on. And we have a whole system that you have to rotate off every two or three years. When we put out a call for new members, we would, and they would be elected. Uh, when I was chair, I don't know what's happening now, but certainly we would get 20, 30, 40, 50 sometimes people applying for two positions on the, on the committee. And these were, many of them were directors of global health. So it was unbelievable the com- competitiveness to get on some of these committees because they were being productive and working very well. So we never had a problem recruiting okay. people onto the committees. It was the opposite, really. I see. Okay. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Quentin Eichbaum. We'll be right back. 
Labvine has recently reached 5,000 members and they're running a Lucky Draw giveaway to celebrate. All you need to do to enter is refer a friend. So log into Labvine, click the refer a friend button and enter their name and email address. Now, there is no limit to how many people you can refer, but each person has to be either a laboratory professional or someone who works in the healthcare field. And if you're not already a LabVine member, you can follow the link in the show notes to sign up and check out some of the great courses that they have to offer. Now back to Dr. Quentin Eichbaum on the People of Pathology podcast. So what about the Global Health Humanities Working Group? You mentioned that. Yeah, so humanities have always been a huge, huge interest of mine. And uh, I started off, as I said, <laughs> wanting to be a writer. And I studied many years of English literature and uh, started a PhD at one point, my advisor died, and uh, I did a master's in, uh, in uh, creative writing. And uh, then at Vanderbilt, I started the, the humanities uh, course and taught that for, for 10 years, really, um, a medical humanities group. And I chaired the biggest consortium of humanities in the US, the Health Humanities Consortium. And I was on the AAMC's uh, Healthcare Integra Humanities and Arts Integration Committee, which just ended its its work for three years. So I then thought, you know, humanities are so central to, to low and middle income. People live the humanities on a daily basis. And, you know, it's not just, humanities are not just as, you know, some people think it's a very naive interpretation of medical humanities that they should be to teach empathy. And that was a very flawed model that here are the doctors, and now we need to make get them teach them some empathy. So we'll just have poetry readings and Mozart and music and read Jane Austen, and then they'll become empathetic. Now that that is a very naive and flawed model. So Global Health Humanities is a group that looks at humanities in in, in low and in, middle income countries and indigenous knowledge and how are people accessing and thinking about the humanities in these countries. I was very struck when I gave a talk on humanities, I think it was in Kenya or Uganda. I thought, okay, maybe 10 people will come. And the room was filled with people from all the disciplines across the universe, and they grasped it immediately, how the humanities plays such a central role in global health and in, in our daily lives. But they play a crucial role because... Uh, it's who we are. It, it, it teaches us, you know, how people respond, say, in South Africa to the HIV the pandemic or epidemic, whatever they called it at the time. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, it was used to access, say, the, the traditional healers. How do they think about infection? Unless we know how to talk to the traditional healers, we'll never get rid breakthrough stigma and we'll never really get through to treatment properly. So you can bring the humanities and integrate them into the sciences very effectively. You have to understand how people's minds work in many cases to be able to bring the science to them. And so I actually taught a course on cognition or metacognition, how the brain really functions and getting through all the biases and cognitive biases and through that's a very instrumentalist approach to the humanities and there are four different approaches but mine was mostly instrumentalist using this humanities in the service of trying to get other skills across currently there's a big big movement in global health um it's almost a buzzword decolonization which you may have heard of and it's a very 10 years ago i got up at a, one of the first cugh meetings and said you know a lot of global health is coming across to me as a neo-colonialism 
And there was, because there was this whole thing of thousands of American and European students descending on low and middle income countries each year to do their little global health experience and then coming back. And for who was it? Who was it helping? And when I said that, there was a stunned silence in the room. And I thought I'd really dropped a bombshell. No one believed it. No one, people thought I was talking nonsense. And now decolonization and the impact of, of, colonization and the power asymmetries between, you know, high income and low and middle income countries is huge. Authorships on paper, who takes the data, who writes the papers, who gets the authorship, partnerships, who controls the money, the funding for all of this. These are all, there's a lot of exploitation of low and middle income countries in, in these partnerships. And the humanities are critical and we're holding a satellite meeting at the CUJH conference just about decolonization because the humanities help us understand the history. How do we get here with this colonization and these attitudes? How do you deconstruct the terms of coloniality and these power asymmetries? How do you address them? So, and what are, what are the roles of the humanities in, in teaching us how to address power asymmetries? So, Humanities are very, very important. Have been very underestimated in, in in global health. So I'm trying to bring more attention to that. And there's some phenomenal people we have, you know, in other countries and with us, working with us. And uh, I hope the field, and it is taking off. Other universities like Duke have a global health humanities working group now, and, and it, it's. But in general, global health is still fairly dominated by. Uh, you know, infectious diseases and epidemiologists, epidemiology, mm-hmm. you don't really understand the importance of humanities. And they think it's, they have this idea that it's fluff or, or you know, it's just for the weak-minded, which absolutely I don't think it is. I think the humanities, more than any discipline, teach us to think conceptually. And that is very important because science and medicine teach us more to think within the guardrails of the discipline, which is its power of science. Um, but it's you're thinking more, weighing up data, and is this right? You're thinking more among the logic and other constraints of thinking of deductive and inductive reasoning. The humanities take you out of that domain into a much broader domain. And in global health humanities, the whole notion of indigenous knowledge, what is it? You know, we're colonial from colonial to indigenous knowledge wasn't worth anything, according to us. Now we see the, how rich it is and what we have to learn from from, from these uh, other groups around the world. Anyway, long answer. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. That's an interesting point of view. I've never really thought of it that way. I mean, you hear about people, you know, doing their sort kind of global health, uh, you, know, you know, trips or fellowships or whatever they are, and it's more about you know, like you said, they go there for what, a month or whatever it is, yeah. come back and take all the credit for it. And it's, you know, yeah, it's like, what do you, what do you leave behind? And what do you really, why are you really trying to do this? Is it for yourself or is it for the people there? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, the, you know, in Africa, many of these groups were too polite to uh, African hospitals or rural people, you know, would often it's very difficult for them to have a student coming in and accommodate mm. them and bring them on the wards. And then on top of it, we have to teach us and don't do this to tell, to come with an attitude that I know how to do things. I'll tell you how to do this properly. And, you know, it, it, it was annoying for many people in Africa and to first of all accommodate people and then to be, have them tell them how you do things properly. And that is changing, you know, we've, 
students come with less of an attitude. And But for a month, you can't affect any change. So it was 95% to the benefit of the visiting student and very little to the benefit of, of, of the African. Longest days of a year also can, can certainly have, a, have an impact. But there should be mm. by, you know, uh, what do you call bilateral tr travel and exchanges of students that we allow people from there to come here and learn targeted skills. 95, 98% right. of it was unidirectional, us going to them because we have the money, we have the resources, we have the ability. And so there was a lot of um, feeling of that there was, you know, some bias in all of this and the power asymmetries and being exploited and but I'm glad now the whole decolonization movement is trying to address this in a more equitable manner. Is this kind of what led to, in part, I guess, you, you co-founded the Consortium of New Sub-Saharan African Medical Schools. So it seems like this is to, you know, you, you want more medical schools in countries in Africa so that students, local students can be taught and, and learn how to be doctors and stay in their own countries. That kind of seems like the goal the goal is a little different. It had a different genesis. The genesis okay. grew in a way out of a reaction to MEPI. And MEPI is the Medical Education Partnership Initiative that was started to uh, reinforce medical education in Africa, and it was funded by PEPFAR. You know, PEPFAR was George W. Bush's main legacy, where they start off with mm. $15 billion yeah. for treating of AIDS in Africa and then grew up to $80 billion. And I was very intrigued because in Namibia, and I, I was asked by MEPI to go and help a new medical school in northern Zambia, which was about to purchase a curriculum for some horrific amount from uh, some Australian school and implement it there, and to go and see why, why they wanted to do this. <laughs> and Sten Vermont, actually, who's now the dean of public health at Yale, had, had asked me to go. And I, I went out there and I met with the dean and we got into conversation for, for a week or so. And, and I Said, don't do this. Don't buy a curriculum. You've got to develop your own curriculum. And at that point, the very famous Lancet document by Julio Frank and others had just come out on uh, uh, healthcare professionals for the 21st century. And they had had very perceptive. That's still the seminal document, I think, in health, global health education. It's online if anyone wants to look at it. Um, uh, and he made it very clear in that document that new medical schools have an advantage in that they can leapfrog over over all the old traditions and implement things afresh, whereas old schools weighted down by tradition suffer from curricular sclerosis. It's very hard to change traditional things. Many of them had old colonial curricula, which they didn't want to change. This is the way we've done it. We always do it like this. And I've been involved in setting up a helping set up a medical school in the U.S. on the Mexican border for a year and a half or two. And so I, I understood some of the issues of new medical schools and how innovative they could really be. And that the Lancet document had also said, you know, start looking at local context and healthcare needs. Do not come and implement a curriculum from outside on top of all that. It's not going to work. So we chatted and then I went through to Namibia, my home country, and I met with the dean of the new medical school there. And I saw they're struggling with a very similar problem. And then I was in Mozambique, in northern Mozambique, and at Unilurio, they were had a similar problem. So I brought them together um, and said, you know, you guys are dealing with very similar issues as you're trying to set up these medical schools. Why don't we get together, talk, share ideas, and set this up? And so that's what we did. We set up initially the 
was initially called the uh, CONSAMS, the Consortium of New Southern African Medical Schools. And now it's New Sub-Saharan African Medical Schools, still called CONSAMS. So we've expanded through Africa. And then I went to MEPI, to the leadership in MEPI, Eric Goosby and people, and said, you know, why are you giving all the money, 13, 133 million, to just 11 or 13 medical schools that, that's a lot of money in Africa. Two million a year is nothing in the US, but in Africa, it's a huge amount of money. Why don't you cut it up and spread it more widely? And they thought I was nuts and they said, no, 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 these are the 13. They were all traditional schools, well established except for one. Um, and they wouldn't hear of it. And so I wrote an article uh, with uh, Stan Lamont in the Journal of AIDS. We put it in so that the global AIDS ambassador Eric Goosby would read it and and lo and behold he did went to the, as an editorial talking about the importance of south to south alliances which is what the Lancet document are called for to have south to south you know networks and alliances so people can have peer-to-peer learning so when he read it he decided he would give us some funding and so we got some funding not nearly as much as the MEPI schools but we started bringing these new schools into uh, collaboration and networking, meeting each other. We had yearly conferences at each new medical school and shared curricula, shared faculty, shared external examiners, published several papers. By the end of MEPI, and I attended all the MEPI conferences and kept telling them, you need to share the love more widely and the funding more widely. By the end of MEPI, they were very impressed by what we had accomplished with this network. And so CONSAMS uh, actually grew out of uh, my seeing that new medical schools needed help. They're fragile. Lesotho Medical School had tried several times to get going, but it couldn't. And the image I have of new medical schools in Africa is it's like a wildebeest being born on the African plains. It has to stand up and start running with the herd within 24 hours or collapses and it doesn't make it. New medical schools are very fragile because they don't always get full government support. They've got to recruit faculty. They're very thin on faculty and resources. It's a hell of a job in a low-resource setting to get a new medical school going. By most estimates, there are about 100 to 200 new medical schools that will be opening in Africa in the next decade. That, to me, is astounding. If you can bring them all together into a consortium to learn from each other, and this is peer-to-peer learning. You can't – MEPI used to say, just let them go and ask the established schools for help. That never worked. The old schools said, just call us if you need help, but they never shared funding. They never really offered substantive help. So it doesn't work. And peer-to-peer learning, where you are at the same stage of learning, like in first-year medical school, you learn most from your peers, really, rather than from you know, a professor who's been there for 50 years. It's a curse of knowledge, really, that people who are in a field can't teach as much as people who are still in the learning phase. So the idea of concepts was peer-to-peer learning. Schools who are struggling with the same issues can help each each other. That is the idea of, of concepts, and it, it's not been easy because you know funding issues and uh, the in many cases the established school feel threatened by a new school in the country. Oh no, who, who's this new player? We now, now, mm. and they often are established in rural areas, and rightly so. But the impact a new school can have in a low resource rural area on providing healthcare there and on uh, you know transforming that community is immense. And I've seen it time and again. And I have photographs of myself, for instance, standing next to the dean at the Zambian school next to the foundation stone. That's all there was, a property and a foundation stone. 
and then seven, eight years later, seeing students in white coats pouring out of a building. That, that, that's incredibly satisfying to see that happen in Africa. There was a, a documentary that I watched oh, yeah. that, that deals with this. I think it's called A Doctor of My Own. Yeah, that was a student of mine um, at mm-hmm. Vanderbilt. Um, and I, I, I structured the whole thing and uh, told her how to do it and what to do. And she flew out and uh, was funding and uh, went there for eight weeks. And she stayed in a hut in northern Namibia, right near the Angolan border, and lived with the people and made this incredible documentary. She had studied documentary at Harvard uh, University and was she had interned with Sanjay Gupta as well, so she knew what she was doing. And she mm-hmm. made this very interesting documentary, A Doctor of My Own, if you want to look. Yeah. I encourage people to look it up. It's free on the web now, A Doctor of My yeah, Own. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. Okay. I'm glad you watched it, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Well, and, and you're in it. Yeah. And you mentioned, this is some a term that you mentioned a little bit earlier, but you say curricula sclerosis. Yeah. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. <laughs> curricula sclerosis is curricula that are so old and haven't been changed for many years, they've got sclerosis. And, you know, we've all been, those of us who have been educated, you're all familiar with a professor whose notes are yellow with age, and they're still teaching the same yeah. course there for the last 20 years. And that has happened in many African medical schools and schools in other parts of the country where people say, I've always taught this, this way. This is, and that we need to move with the times. You've got to be, the, one of the Lancet documents' main context was context. You've got to be very attuned to the context of what is happening on the ground in your country at the time. You know, HIV epidemic, you know, if that's not in the curriculum front and central in African countries, then you're failing. And there are many other aspects of, so you've got to, the curriculum has to take account of the context in which that school is sitting and the healthcare needs. That doesn't mean you ignore, you know, the the rest of, of medical education, but you've got to focus on what is needed there. So I would attend, for instance, you know, one has to ask. I went into Namibia and I sat in on a lecture was on organic chemistry and they were giving a, a very detailed description of nucleophilic attack. Now, <laughs> those of us in medicine who did organic chemistry was always said, oh, you have to do organic chemistry because it trains your memory and you have to. I disagree with that. I think we teach way too much organic chemistry. You do not need it to be an effective doctor. Why on earth are you spending weeks teaching about a, an abstruse concept of nucleophilic attack in an African university? You need to know basics of organic chemistry and move ahead and it's a, it's a little bit like the way anatomy teaching is gradually changing when i did it at harvard medical school in the hst mit program we were taught we had anatomy three or four times a week for a whole year and it was too much i think the yield is low you don't need to do that anymore you need to know basic anatomy or teach anatomy to surgeons they need to know it better than others not everyone needs to know it all and so there are many things in medicine which are, are suffer from that curricular sclerosis. They were taught for many years, and they continue being taught, and they are not needed to become an effective doctor. And that's a waste of time and energy and resources to, to teach that. And you need to focus on what is needed to become an effective doctor in that setting. So that that's, you know, you need to be responsive. Mm-hmm. And the new schools can be, as the Lancet document says, they can leapfrog with technologies and the new schools were started to use iPads for teaching and pathology. They were teaching in Botswana. They had a whole set of slides from um, from uh, Alabama, uh, which they could teach very quickly the diagnosis. They didn't need glass slides anymore. 
Um, likewise, anatomy, they, they, because donation of, of cadavers is problematic in many African countries for cultural reasons, they got this an anatomy kind of table, which is expensive, but they could teach quite effectively. And Namibia had one of the best, they did do a live dissection. They had a really good uh, lab, an odor-free lab, in which they did the dissection. So they leapfrogged with many technologies and in many other respects, and many examples of how they you know, managed to use technologies, you know, WhatsApp and even the iPhone, which just permeated Africa. People thought iPhones would never take off in Africa. They're much, much better users of, not iPhone, I mean smartphones, than, than we are in many ways. And they can use them in medical education as well. Yeah, I like that idea, the, uh, the idea of, uh, you know, teaching within the context of the environment. Oh, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely, yeah. There's a paper that you co-authored in the American Journal of Clinical Pathology. Mm-hmm. And this is called a survey of clinical and anatomical pathology laboratory infrastructure in Mozambique, mm-hmm. which again, now this, this, you know, links into your, your global health mm-hmm. interest and a lot of the other things we've been talking about. So where did the idea for this paper and this survey come from? Yeah. So um, I'd started uh, talking at ACP about, you know, why, why are we not doing more, you know, was it ACP or some other conference? Um, uh, about pathology in Africa, and there had been Lancet commissions on other medical specialties. And so I had a meeting with, I think it was the editor of one of the commissions about doing this for pathology. Surgery had just been done. And um, the I was in a room with Ken Fleming from Oxford and, and the editor, and we started talking about doing a, a commission. And when the commission wasn't actually the commission was established years later, but they brought out a Lancet document, which is, you know, well done. It's called uh, uh, Pathology and Laboratory Medicine Low and Middle Income Countries. Unfortunately, many, maybe not unfortunately, but many of the people they invited to participate that was perplexingly actually non pathologists. I mean, they were pathologists, but they're also people from maybe they were needed, I don't know, um, emergency medicine. And it, it's a good document and it draws attention to it and I was in in touch with them uh, a lot of the time but that document gives a broad overview of the pathology deficits in Africa which are immense Uh, there's a shortfall of 27,000 pathologists in Africa and uh, Ann Nelson and Dan Milner and and myself were surveyed these countries, they did the initial publication and I published some things with Ann Nelson after that Um, showing that some countries in Africa have no pathologists, some have one. South Africa is fairly well endowed, but how on earth can you diagnose anything and treat anything if you have no pathologists? So based on that and the Lancet document, it, it occurred to me that we have a broad overview, but we don't really have a granular view of what's going on in the country. And I'd had a colleague at Vanderbilt who had started surveying, she was an anesthesiologist, uh, and who on earth would have thought years ago that anesthesia would come into global health, but obviously it has to be there. And she had started surveying countries in Africa to look at the landscape of anesthesia capacity. And she started doing country by country. And so I had colleagues in Mozambique um, uh, whom I'd met at pathology conferences and sort of asked him, why don't we look at the landscape of Mozambique, which interestingly, they had a nice pathology pr- training program in Maputo, and but the north well, had nothing. So it was an effort, but I brought together people at different hospitals and 
uh, wrote this paper with them. They were on the ground. It's important to have people on the ground to contact uh, people in the labs. And you get a, a very granular view of the capacity of the labs in, 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 in pathology in, in Mozambique. I set up two extensive surveys, one in uh, clinical pathology and one in anatomical pathology, which uh, were piloted and fine-tuned and uh, the chief medical officer of ACP has also looked at them and he thinks they're very good surveys. And so we surveyed it and wrote it up. And now we are going to start surveying other countries in Africa and uh, you know, get a good sense of what, what is going on. Now, the reason you may ask, why do you do that? What, what's, what's, what's the point? The point that I noticed from my colleague who surveyed anesthesia, it drew a lot of attention to the plight of anesthesia, the lack of anesthesia in these countries. And they got people got, you know, looked at it and it drew attention and it got funding. And so my hope is that by getting more attention and eyes on, on what the problem is, that, that we may be able to do something about the immense shortage of pathologists in Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it says in the paper, there's only 14 pathologists in all of Mozambique. And that's a lot compared to many other yeah. African countries. Mm -hmm. And and it, it says there's only four central hospitals, which yeah. now I was thinking about this in the city where I live in Milwaukee, there are four of these types of hospitals just in this city. So it seems it's, it's hard to, it's hard to like kind of grasp that an entire country only has that many of these major hospitals. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And, uh, you know, how, how can you run a healthcare? This is why I say pathology is a missing link in global health. People need to understand that, that you have to get the labs functioning. You have to, PEPFAR understood that. PEPFAR did quite a lot to capacitate labs in Africa because they noticed, how can we diagnose HIV? How can we treat it if we can't do CD4 counts and viral loads? You can't do anything. So they had to start doing that. And that actually helped the lab capacity in a country like Mozambique, which, which was a focus of PEPFAR and still is. Okay, so that's kind of the goal here is to sort of draw attention to the lack of yeah. pathologists, not only in Mozambique, but throughout Africa. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Something else that was in this paper that I found interesting was the, the concept of non-physician pathologists, which it seems like this is this was kind of started to kind of fill the gap a little bit. Can you Can you <laughs> tell me about this role? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nuanced and tricky argument. Um, you know, when it's been raised, how on earth are you going to fill this gap? And one person did a calculation that by current levels of training and capacitation would take 450 years to bring Africa up to the level of pathologists that really need it. Wow. So what are you going to do? Just uh -huh. sit and wait 450 years? The planet won't be, the planet will be there. We will, we'll be extinct. Right. But um, you can't wait that long. Um, so the idea of using, you know, non-physician pathologists has come up and the analogies, you know, are, I remember very clearly when physician assistants were first raised as, and doctors kicked up a fuss, it's going to be a fiasco, or, or like CVS pharmacies were going to be a fiasco. But they never turned out to be a fiasco. They worked. So this is an idea of getting people to do the, the basic work. And some people disagree with it vehemently and say, no, no, you, and they're actually right that you need accurate diagnosis. You can't have someone who's not a – pathology is tricky to get an accurate diagnosis. Some of it is, not all. So they argue that you need better training, not less, you know, lesser training. But I, I fall somewhere in between because if you look at the 
um, and I work in another group. Um, uh, I'm doing projects in artificial intelligence in, in pathology. People have argued that AI is going to take over pathology and put us out of business. Now, that's simply not true. AI is going to help get right. a lot of the workload out of the way, but the tricky diagnosis will always – no machine has yet fully matched uh, uh, human cognition when it comes to real complexity of, of looking at, at things. So I think you could argue that maybe non-physician scientists can certainly play a role in the very basic things, get them out of the way, and then maybe the more complex things, you still need highly trained pathologists. But it may help in taking at least that big workload away, as we have we have instrumentation in the U.S. that does a lot of that, you know, um, you know for CBCs and blasts and uh, you know, can remove a lot of that workload and leave some more complex stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, cognitive capacity for trained pathologists to do. So I see a role over there, but I don't think you can supplant um, expert pathologists with, with non-physician pathologists. Something else from from this article, it says that one of the barriers to the lack of appropriate pathology services is a lack of infrastructure. Now, what what are you talking about there? What, is that, what does that mean, infrastructure? Well, the infrastructure strikes one at several levels. It's, um, you know, they, the labs just don't, you know, have a proper microscope or they don't have a proper centrifuge or the, you know, they, they're just lacking equipment. So there was a move at one point to um, send equipment from the U.S. and it's still ongoing. Rotary is doing it, I think, to, to African countries. And there are pros and cons to it. If the, if the instrument is fully functional, it can work, but many people send instruments that are broken. <laughs> and there are many African players that have broken equipment sitting in a corner. And that, that is oh, wow. no use to them. No use. Don't just send your, your updated, uh, you know, mm-hmm. dysfunction. Now, sometimes it's not broken. It works. The problem in Africa is servicing the instruments. South Africa has good servicing, but many other countries don't. So if the instrument breaks, they, they can spend weeks getting someone out to, to really fix it. Um, so that, that's the issue of infrastructure. The other issue is also, so there is a lack of proper labs, functional labs, or say, you know, hoods and counters, but it's, it's happening very slowly and it's gratifying to see these, you know, labs getting better equipment and the American side of clinical pathology and I, at a global health group I was on that for some years have done a, an incredibly good job uh, you know trying to help with this problem and some companies have donated equipment uh, and so so I, it's it's happening slowly not fast enough but it is happening yeah you're right I've heard a lot about, about a lot of things that the ASCP is doing to help in this area I mean there was something they kind of called it sort of a lab in a box where they would yeah. send uh, you know people and equipment and things over there but the idea was to train the, yeah. the people in the country so that they could yeah. they could do it themselves absolutely yeah that's that's important i mean having people fly out and help now there's kajabi outside nairobi has done that and i have a program where we have pathology resident faculty who've gone out there uh, periodically and kajabi is one of the much better hospitals in in uh, East Africa, outside Nairobi, and it's, but it's not sustainable, really. They would fund pathologists to come out. They had many retiree pathologists coming out, but, you know, you really need, they had a whole house called Pathology House where they would put them up to stay. They, because the surgeons, they needed, you know, pathologic diagnosis, but absolutely local training is the most important thing. And 
you know, why are people not going into pathology in Africa is, mm-hmm. is, is a complex issue. I mean, I've asked colleagues, what is it? My friends in Mozambique have told me a lot of it's cultural. So Mozambique, actually one of the authors on the Mozambique paper told me, his brother always tells him, don't tell people you're a pathologist. Tell them you're a real doctor. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and I, just, I said, why? He said, because it is very much associated with death. People think pathologists cut up dead bodies. And you get that oh, in the U.S. as well. Often sure. when I tell people I'm a pathologist, they first of all, they think of Grisham or whoever these authors are that write about all this forensic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they always think, oh, you spend your whole day doing autopsies and cutting up dead bodies. They have no idea often about, you know, I always joke, I say, I see living. Some of my patients are alive, I tell people. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, but People, even in the U.S. and Europe, don't really fully understand what, what, what pathologists do. And even when I give talks at surgical conferences, and I, I gave a three-minute talk at a big surgical conference, and um, that's all the time I was allowed to tell them what pathology did. <laughs> they were astounded that clinical pathology has seven subspecialties, and anatomic has you know, all these specialties now in head and neck, and all. And it's a highly complex uh, discipline. But in Africa... Many people told me there's a stigma about pathology. It's considered not very high up on the, you know, uh, medical training hierarchy. And, you know, even in the U.S., many of our pathologists uh, come from other countries because it's a less competitive discipline to get into. There's a shortage of pathologists in Europe as well and in the U.S. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's something that we need attention drawn to. And hopefully the pandemic will have drawn some attention to the importance of it but it seems to be in africa from what i understand it's people don't know what it is what it does but it's associated with death and there's a taboo it seems about cutting up dead bodies in in africa there's a whole cultural thing there and this is again where global health humanities can be of enormous help you know you come in you can't solve this problem why are people not going to pathology the humanities can come and help us what 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 do communities think about Mm. How do they pass this this idea of death? Why are they so against cutting up a dead body or, or whatever for an autopsy? So again, global health humanity is critically important for the science to work properly. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, or, uh, and we kind of touched on some of this already, but what are some things that those of us in the higher income countries can do to help the organizations that that you that you were involved in that we, that we talked about? A good, good point. You know, I think uh, you know there's a la- lack of awareness of, of what Africa's about. Certainly, and I don't mean to sound crass about it, but donation of money, go to www.consams.org. I think we're having a button which should go live to donate uh, whatever amounts you, you can donate. I think in your subspecialty, you, you know, uh, I don't want to say go out <laughs> because that's the whole field of global health is going to be radically transformed for two reasons when we come out of the pandemic. The pandemic has had a big effect on it and the whole move of decolonization. How are we going to, you know, what is this right for thousands of people to go out and help and how are we going to change that? So I think that, um, you know, I, I'm not against, I think there is a role for people working with organizations that work in Africa to understand what, 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 and I, my focus is on Africa, so it's not the only global region. There's a lot going on in other parts of the world, but I think the, the, the biggest shortages and needs in global health are, are by far in Africa. So 
I would, you know, at least become aware of what the issues are, see in whatever level you can be, be, be of help. It's a hard one, you know, because I don't want to say get on a plane and <laughs> travel mm. there and help. But I think, uh, you know, you, there are organizations you can work with, NGOs that are, are doing really good work in places and struggling and, you know, connecting with NGOs that are involved in Africa. For pathologists, if you ask them specifically, you know, there are networks of pathologists actually that have um, worked in telehealth quite effectively. The initial problem with telehealth was that the, the tissue specimens were, were, were not uh, clear enough, the pixels often, to do good diagnosis. But now they've been vastly improved. And I'm not an anatomical pathologist, but I'm told that uh, they, 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 they can now be projected very well. And it's easier to do uh, distance pathology and diagnosis. So those kinds of things can help as well. If, you, if you're disinclined to travel and don't want to and you don't really need to, I think what is going to change, and the, the pandemic also showed us that the, the efficacy of, of telehealth and yeah. the whole distance learning thing, Zoom has, has really had a big, big impact. We can have conferences. I'm on conference calls, you know, often daily and certainly weekly with colleagues in different organizations in Africa. And Skype was a, a nightmare, I thought it with Africa, this, the connectivity was terrible, but, but the newer platforms make, make it much, much easier, and the bandwidth in Africa has improved vastly in many areas, so that distance interaction is, is, is much more feasible thank, thanks to what has happened during the pandemic, so you can get involved from the US with Africa and provide advice and um, help you know, many projects need need some sort of funding or connect people with with people you know. So I think there are things, but I, I, uh, you know, it's um, pathology. I think we need to train people on the ground so that training can actually happen distance through distance learning, and I think that's where it it will be improved. That uh, there are many. Curricula being developed, um, and again, we don't want to export curricula, but it's mostly training people in, in effective diagnosis and reading lab values. Um, something we tried at one point, and it didn't work because connectivity wasn't good at that point, was a distance diagnostic management team. Now some people are doing it again, and it's working much more effectively. If they get a case they can't really diagnose, you have a weekly or bi-weekly meeting and you look at the labs and they send them to you and you help and you have a discussion on Zoom about what's going on here. So I think that's probably an area where through distance uh, platforms where one could, could, could have an impact in health and pathology. All right. This has been a really interesting conversation. I feel like we could keep going for probably a, at least another hour. Thank you very much. I, I yeah. really appreciate your time. Uh, yeah. So, Dr. Quentin Eichbaum, thank you very yeah. much. No, thank you. So you're very welcome, and thank you for inviting me. Great. Big thanks to Dr. Quentin Eichbaum. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. But besides that, I also realized that I did not feel like surgery was for me. I was more interested in the diagnostic portion of medicine. Like, I really loved to be able to like diagnose is what I was kind of going for, which is hard in surgery like for me when I was originally entering surgery. And, and fun fact, when I initially went into medical school, I wanted to do family medicine. I wanted to go in and, and go in, do family medicine and be like, all right, like this is 
what I was doing. And then I did clinic and I was like, I'm not a family medicine doctor. I was so much more interested in hypophysiology and then I can come up with diagnosis. And I was like, that's where I feel like I'm heading. I thought surgery okay. was that way of doing that, but it was actually pathology. And so I was able to take a elective with the, patho- the pathology department at the University of Buffalo. And they opened me with buckle arms and they were so like gracious, and amazing. And I, and I said, yeah, this is it. So midway, this was, I think September is when I did this elective. I was like, yep. So I, I got recommendation letters and applied to pathology and the history has written itself afterwards. You can hear more from Dr. Michael Williams in episode 79. And you can also hear me on the latest episode of his podcast, Diversify in Path. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Eichbaum. You know, this sort of conceptual thinking about pathology and medical education and global health. I think there's really a lot to learn there, and there's certainly a lot to think about. Please take a look at the show notes and check out some of the articles that he talked about, including his most recent one about pathology in Mozambique. And I think you'll really enjoy the documentary as well. I, I certainly did. So, like I said, all of those links will be in the show notes. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share this show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being, and you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.